The text for our sermon this morning is Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11. I, even I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. This passage assumes two core doctrines of the Christian faith. The sinfulness of mankind and the work of the Savior. Now you'd think that there'd be no debate about this, but these doctrines have always been hotly debated, hotly contested. Nearly the first 450 years of church history were spent in defending the person, nature, and deity of Christ. The Nicene Creed that we've, decided, that we've recited for the last several weeks was written in an effort to codify the Bible's teaching about the work and person of Christ within the Holy Trinity. Let me tell you a good Christmas story. A minister named Nicholas of Myra, whom we know today as Saint Nick, Santa Claus, he was among the 318 ministers who were gathered at the famed Council of Nicaea in the year 325 AD. This is the council that produced our Nicene Creed. Well, they convened to deal with a heretic named Arius, who was denying that the Son is of the same essence as the Father. You know, when Jesus said that, spoke of the importance of every single jot and tittle of God's word, he was not kidding. The debate between the heretic Arius and the rest of Orthodox Christendom turned on one Greek letter. The phrase in the creed of one substance is the English rendering of the, Hebrew, of the Greek word homoousios, which means, uh, the important part of that is the prefix homo, which means the same. Arius added one letter and pronounced it homoi, which means similar rather than the same. So Arius' form of the creed would have read, being of a similar substance with the Father. That may sound mysterious, but it's just a convoluted way of saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is not true God. Well, during one of the sessions of the Nicene Council, Arius had the floor to present his position. Nicholas of Myra is sitting there, listening to an ordained minister of Christ's church openly and repeatedly deny that Christ is God. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. Nicholas got up, walked across the forum, and slapped Arius in the mouth for his persistent denial of the deity of Christ. I bet the Jehovah's Witnesses are glad that that never became a Christmas tradition. Gives a whole new meaning to getting your two front teeth for Christmas, doesn't it? In our Gospel reading earlier from Luke chapter 2, we read the announcement of the angels. This day in the city of David is born unto you a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now I want you to think about that word, Savior. The New Testament hardly asserts anything more than that Jesus is the Savior. But in our text from Isaiah, God says, I am Jehovah. Besides me, there is no Savior. Of course, this can only mean one thing. Jesus is God. That fact constitutes the very essence and glory of the gospel. He who took upon himself the form of a servant and offered up the sacrifice of Calvary is God over all, blessed forevermore. This is what gives the cross all of its glory and efficacy. 
The whole fabric of evangelical truth is built on this foundation. Christ is God. He is the maker and sovereign ruler of the universe who made expiation for our sins. On any other hypothesis, the cross is just another ordinary event, just some guy dying as a martyr for his cause. If Jesus were not God, if he were a mere created being, however great and glorious, where is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh? Where are the unfathomable depths of divine love into which the angels desire to look? If Christ be only a servant of God, however exalted, what was there in his appearance in our world to constitute a new era in heaven and to fill its inhabitants with astonishment and wonder? The angelic host appears over the fields of Bethlehem, causing the mountains of Judea to echo with their acclamation of worship because what? A mere creature, a mere frail creature consented to do his maker's will? Nonsense. If Jesus were merely a man and not God, then why did the angels cry, glory to God in the highest? Why do the courts of heaven resound with a new song of praise to God for his redeeming mercy? If this redemption was wrought by the labors of a mere finite, are we to believe that the whole dispensation of Moses was designed to prepare the way for a mere human messenger of God to declare his will and seal his testimony with his blood like many good men have done before? Why is John commissioned to prepare the way of the Lord Jehovah if Jesus were a mere man? Isaiah 40, which is a prophecy about John the Baptist, tells us that John's message is, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those who are with young. No, this is no mere man for whom John is forerunner. This is God. The Lord is my shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. If he were a mere man, then why did the patriarchs and prophets foretell his coming and celebrate his praises? Why does Micah say that his goings forth are from of old from everlasting. Why are his sufferings typified by the continual offering of divinely appointed sacrifices for so many centuries? And why did nature shudder and shroud herself in darkness at the consummation of those sufferings? All these things are completely and utterly incomprehensible on the theory that Christ is a mere created and dependent being. But view him as God manifest in the flesh as voluntarily laying aside his glory and descending from the throne of infinite majesty to assume our nature and expiate the guilt of our ruined race and all the pieces fall into place. The ceremonies of the Old Testament administration, the songs of the prophets and angels all make sense. They're preparing the way 
for the visible manifestation of God among men. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And therefore, without the declaration of Christ's Godhead, there is no preaching of the gospel. Our catechism teaches us this truth in questions 14 through 18. Let me read them for you now. Question 14, can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature, able to satisfy for us? Answer, none, for first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin, so as to deliver others from it. Question 15, what sort of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? Answer, for one who is very man and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Question 16. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Answer. Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature, which at sin should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner, cannot satisfy for others. Question 17. Why must he in one person be also very God? Answer. That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. And finally, question 18. Who is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Answer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is of God, made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The mystery of God assuming into Personal union, a true human nature, is absolutely unfathomable. Worship is the only proper response. The wonder of the Incarnation is described beautifully by St. Augustine in one of his famous Christmas sermons. He writes, In the bosom of his Father he existed before all cycles of ages. Born of an earthly mother, he entered upon the course of years on this day. The maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, that he, the way, might be wearied by the journey, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, discipline, might be scourged with whips. That he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross. That courage might be weakened. That security might be wounded. That life might die. To endure these and similar indignities for us. To free us, unworthy creatures. He who existed as the Son of God before all ages, without a beginning, deigned to become the Son of Man in these recent years. He did this, although he who submitted to such evils for our sake had done no evil, and although we, who were the recipients of so much good at his hands, had done nothing to merit these benefits. Begotten by the Father, he was not made by the Father, he was made man in the mother whom he himself had made, so that he might exist here from a while, sprung from her who could never and nowhere have existed except through his. Wow.
No wonder Paul calls the incarnation the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The gospel is proclaimed in the very name of the Son of God. His name is Jesus, which means Jehovah is Savior. Matthew's gospel records the following. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The reality of God dwelling with his people and conversely his people dwelling with him is found throughout the scriptures. Moses writes in Leviticus 26 verses 11 and 12, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. We rightly call this promise the Emmanuel promise for in it, God promises to be God with us. That promise was depicted vividly in both the tabernacle and in the temple. When Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years dwelling in tents, God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle, a tent. When Israel had fully subdued the land of Canaan and were dwelling in peace and rest under King Solomon, God commanded that his tent was to be replaced with a temple. Since his people were now dwelling permanently in houses in the promised land, he would now dwell in a house with them. This promise is repeated numerous times in scripture and in many forms, and it finds its fulfillment in the incarnation of Christ. The promise comes to ultimate fruition in the consummation of all things recorded for us in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3, which reads, Now I saw... A new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. You notice that this passage cites Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12. Jesus, our Jehovah's Savior, is born to save us from our sins. It took nothing less than God manifest in the flesh to purchase our pardon and peace with God. May we never be so foolish as to rely on our own power. In Isaiah 31, verse 1, God declares... Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Our catechism teaches us that Jesus is called our Savior because he does, in very fact, save and deliver us from our sins. And therefore, we should not seek, nor can we find, salvation in any other. And furthermore, those who do not seek or those who do seek their salvation and welfare 
anywhere else but in Christ and Christ alone, do not believe in him at all, though they boast of him in words. They indeed deny Jesus, the only deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true. Either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that those who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. So we come full circle to the words of our text. I, even I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Jesus is our Savior because Jesus is God with us. Let us pray. Most blessed Lord Jesus Christ, thou Savior of men, for thy deep humiliation, we bring thee on the day of thine incarnation praise and honor, glory and thanksgiving. Verily, before thee every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth must bow, and every tongue must confess that thou art the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord Jesus Christ, thou Savior and King of glory, it should be our glad duty to bring unto thee the offerings and gifts of faithful, contrite, humble, and thankful hearts. But being sinful and unrighteous, we pray thee to work in us the things that are pleasing in thy sight. O oh, enter in and be born in us today by thy Spirit, thou blessed of the Lord, thou Prince of Peace. Yea, do thou consecrate our hearts that they may be thy temples. Gather all Christian rulers around thy manger and teach them to renew allegiance to thee on the day of thy incarnation. Make all preachers of thy word to be messengers of that peace that cry, Thy King, thy God. Grant that on the anniversary of thine incarnation, all parents and teachers take to heart that thou hast declared the children to be sacred unto thee. May they never offend any of these little ones, but lead them unto thee, Lord Jesus, so that from their youthful lips thy praises might be chanted. Have mercy on the poor, the sick, the dejected, and afflicted. Refresh them with thy comfort, awaken and strengthen within the living hope of their eternal salvation, to which we have been exalted by thy voluntary humiliation. Grant that all who look forward to thy last coming with good cheer and enter into the heritage of thy saints in the light, there to sing unto thee the everlasting hallelujah. Give ear unto our prayer, Lord, our Savior, who makest intercession for us at the throne of thy Father in heaven. To whom we pray the prayer you taught your disciples, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Please